welcome to Arbitral Insights, a podcast series brought to you by our international arbitration practice lawyers here at Reed Smith. I'm Jose Estigarraga, Global Head of Reed Smith's International Arbitration Practice. I hope you enjoy the industry commentary, insights, and anecdotes we share with you in the course of this series, wherever in the world you are. If you have any questions about any of the topics discussed, please do contact our speakers. And with that, let's get started. Welcome, everyone, to Arbitral Insights, Reed Smith's podcast series on international arbitration. I'm Jose Estigarraga, the global chair of Reed Smith's international arbitration practice. And I'm delighted to welcome today a very special guest to our program, Alexi Moore, the president of the ICC. As no doubt you know, this year marks the culmination of Alexis's tenure as president of the ICC Court of Arbitration. Given the transformation the ICC has undergone in his leadership, we thought it would be very valuable and interesting to ask Alexei to reflect on his presidency, ask him about the changes and innovations he led, and as well to ask him about his vision for the future. This is part one of our two-part series. So with that, Alexei, welcome to the program. Hello, Jose. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Well, with that, Alexi, let me get right to it. You are finishing uh, your term of two terms now, uh, totaling six years as president of the ICC. Your tenure has been marked. Uh, and I'm not saying this just to be nice. I'm saying it because it's the reality of been marked by innovation and change at the ICC. And I thought that it would be particularly interesting to our listeners to Take advantage at this juncture to, in effect, uh, ask you to reflect a bit on the, given that you have a unique vantage point in the world of international arbitration, as well as with respect to the ICC, to reflect a bit on your tenure, as well as to look towards the future. I thought that during this podcast that we would look at three aspects, uh, Alexi. One is the state of international arbitration in general. Number two, to talk about some ICC-specific aspects. And then uh, finally, to, in effect, talk to you about, a little bit about the, you know, your personal views towards the future and plans and perhaps some advice you might have for folks interested in international arbitration. So let me ask you first about your view of international commercial, uh, focus on commercial arbitration first. In your view, what are the three biggest challenges facing international commercial arbitration today? Thank you, Jose. That's a very broad question, and there are there are many. If I if I had to list three, I, I would say in, in no particular order. One is certainly the the phase of transition that arbitration is at the moment undergoing. Some talk about a legitimacy crisis. There is certainly a process uh, of uh, more diversity, uh, more regionalization. There is a demand on the part of users for more efficiency. Of course, the question of ethics and transparency is on the top of the agenda of all main institutions. So that, that overall is, is a process of, of change which will have important consequences. A second one is the question of artificial intelligence and, and ODR, which I think will Moving, moving forward, change a lot of things for arbitration. The advent of uh, predictive justice may, of course, have uh, long-term uh, very significant consequences. It is a question that is pretty much linked to transparency as well, because you, 
you will have no predictive justice if, if the data is not available and the data are the awards. Uh, ODR, of course, is a question which will be very important in the years to come. And thirdly, something that, that I see as a challenge is to maintain moving forward the liberal regime which has been put in place uh, since the New York Convention for International Commercial Arbitration. And we need to avoid what I see as a potential uh, for contamination coming in particular from consumer law. That is something that is particularly pregnant in North America. The regime of international commercial arbitration is extremely liberal because it applies to international commercial arbitration. If it were to apply uh, as well to cases where you have a weak party involved or case of consumer law, employment law, then I think moving forward, you would have a regulatory back- backlash for arbitration. And, and that will be a challenge also, uh, as a recent case in Canada has shown. Excellent, Alexi. Obviously, you, that's, there's a lot to unpack in, in what you've said, and we're going to cover uh, a couple of those uh, in particular. But let me ask you, you touched on artificial intelligence. Obviously, we've sort of all speculated or had some fun with the idea of whether robots will ever replace arbitrators. But my question there is, what, say, in, you know, in, in 10 years, where do you see, what role do you see for artificial intelligence, specifically in the context of a substantial commercial arbitration? Yes, I don't think, and I hope that we will not see in the future robots arbitrating. Uh, arbitration is fundamentally a human activity. It is uh, men and women casting a judgment with their moral, moral values on other men and women. And I don't think that that can be done by, by, by a robot. Uh, nonetheless, I think that artificial intelligence will disrupt our life as we know it today in two ways. The first is ODR and the management of arbitration case, cases completely online with still an arbitrator somewhere, but ODR as a platform to allow parties, in particular low-value cases, to have access to a more efficient and, and quicker uh, justice and the second one is predictive justice. As I, as I said, predictive justice is supposes that a large mass of awards be made available to the analysts. And so it's pretty much linked to, to transparency as well. For us, as you know, at the ICC, the publication of awards uh, has been and is an important policy. Uh, I think that it will be a pillar for the development of, of predictive justice. In a certain number of areas of, uh, of international litigation where uh, Cases are fairly simple, repetitive. Uh, if if the data is available to analysts, then you will be able in the future to have softwares allowing to analyze that, that big data and to provide a prediction as to uh, what the outcome of a case might be. And this, of course, will encourage settlements, will uh, encourage uh, mediations, uh, and it will allow parties to prepare their case better. Very, very interesting. Let me ask, Alexi, if you were able to make one change, you know, you're limited to one change, but you had the power to make it, what would be the one change you would make for in the practice of international commercial arbitration? Well, the the one thing I would aspire to, uh, and it's something that the ICC has worked on and we have introduced to a certain extent, but not fully, is the question of uh, transparency in general, and in particular, the systematic publication of awards. I think, uh, and I hope that arbitration will move away in the years to come from its culture of secrecy, from the idea that arbitration should be secret or confidential. I think that publishing awards, and it should 
in the future, I hope it will no longer be uh, based on consent. Uh, the ICC, as you know, has moved to an opt-out system. Perhaps we could dream uh, of a system in the future whereby, as a matter of principles, awards would be would be uh, available to the public unless both parties agree to the contrary. That would be a revolution. So if there if there is one one systemic change that I would aspire to uh, to see in the ten years to come, it would be this: to have. Uh, uh, the entire system for arbitration uh, institutions and parties moving into a system where uh, confidentiality will become the exception and transparency will become the principle. That's very interesting. I can tell you that certainly from the standpoint of a practitioner that from time to time, of course, needs to make arbitrator selections. Certainly, the, the greater transparency would be wonderfully helpful as you try to anticipate. You talk about predictive justice. A lot of the, what we do now is very simply, in effect, try to predict, but really without the tools or the, or the information, which leads me into the, the question of arbitrator challenges. You know, at one point, arbitrator challenges were de rigueur. Do you foresee the trend, you know, of arbitrator challenges increasing, decreasing, staying the same? What What is your, your view currently of that issue? What we have seen in the ICC since 2016 is is interesting. Certainly a trend to, to, to more challenges. We had in 2016 50 challenges filed, and we had uh, last year uh, 92. So it's a significant increase. Nonetheless, the number of challenges accepted by the court uh, has remained even. Five in 2016, uh, five in 2020. It has uh, been six, seven, uh, depending on years, but it it has remained substantially at the same level. So yes, we might see more challenges, more challenges, I think, is not necessarily a bad thing. Uh, it means that uh, perhaps there are more information, perhaps transparency translates into more challenges, and you will need to see institutions being robust in, uh, in, in rejecting those challenges that are meritless. But yes, based on the evidence that we have at the ICC, saying that the number of challenges may increase is perhaps true. Some of the changes that we have introduced, for example, uh, the requirement of disclosure of the existence and identity of a third-party funder uh, might translate into more challenges, which is fine. Again, challenging an arbitrator is a right of a party. What would be fundamentally negative uh, would be that challenges are not made because, uh, because disclosures are not made and the information is not made available to the parties. Perfect. Perfect. Understood. Alexi, let me let me ask you this. Let's talk geography. We've seen the growth of regional centers in, in the past 20 years, say, and I know you personally have expressed that that is a healthy thing for uh, international arbitration. At the same time, there, there's also an element of competition for uh, among the centers, uh, including the ICC and, and regional centers and so on. Fast forward 10 years, what effect do you believe that the growth of regional centers will have upon international arbitration in general and upon you know, the major arbitral institutions such as the ICC in particular? Well, you, you don't need to look in 10, 10 years from now. Uh, this is something that is a reality already today. 10 years ago or 15 years ago, essentially, the ICC would be alone on the market with very little competition. Uh, now, it's an entirely different ballgame, of course. We are seeing the emergence not only of regional institutions, but also of, 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 of local institutions. 
which, as far as the ICC is concerned, is, of course, a challenge because the ICC is, by nature, a global institution, so it needs to uh, uh, offer its services globally. But there is an increasing requirement on the part of uh, users and parties that we be more present on the ground, closer to them, which explains the moves that we have uh, made to uh, regionalize our services and to open uh, case management offices around the world. So this has many effects for us because it obliges us to compete globally and also to be more more local, to to be more global in a way. I think it will also change uh, the dynamic of arbitration globally in the sense that uh, more robust institutions locally and regionally is something that energizes uh, the arbitration communities around the globe. It contributes to increasing the diversity of the arbitration community, and that can be only good. Competition and uh, uh, and diversity and regionalization go hand to hand, and they contribute to making arbitration stronger. That's perfect, and I, I agree on the on the value of that is provided by regional and local centers. I wonder if one side effect, one consequence, uh, Alexi, of that is that this growth of regional local centers results in less standardization in the practice of international arbitration. I'm referring to things like the, the IBA rules that uh, on evidence that develop best practices you know, across uh, legal traditions, civil and, and common law and so on. I ask it, Alexei, because I had the, as, as, as you know, I had the privilege of co-chairing the ICC's task force on the value of witness evidence and we conducted among the task force a survey uh, among the members who, of course, came across the globe of things like, well, how do you process witness evidence and so on? And I was struck by the uh, and the answers that we received about really the, the just the, the variety of views and practices of with respect to witness evidence and so on. And my point is, does the while on the one hand, a global institution like the ICC can help spread best practices and so on, and the IBA rules similarly have you know such a, a harmonizing effect, does the growth of regional centers result in the atomization of the practice of international arbitration, which you know in, in, a, in a certain sense is good because it's more responsive to local needs. In, a, in another sense, it's not good because it creates barriers to uh, entry, and uh, you know similarly as well, parties can feel not comfortable if they don't have the same level of familiarity, if you would, as where they could say, well, we're going to have sort of a uniform or a commonly accepted standard. Do you have a view on that? Yeah, I would not say that the growth of local or regional institutions is a phenomenon that leads to atomization of arbitration in terms of its practices and rules. What we have seen in the past 10 years, if anything, is that at the same time, arbitration has grown as a more diverse environment uh, with uh, the emergence of arbitration communities in in different parts of the world, uh, the emergence of new arbitral centers in different parts of the world. And at the same time, it has uh, maintained Uh, the consistency of its practices uh, and values. What we have seen, but I I don't see that as a phenomenon that is related to the emergence of of regional centers, is a certain phenomenon of renationalization, in a way, of of arbitration, which uh, has operated, I think, in in some limited parts of, of the community. 
you mentioned the RBA rules on evidence. Uh, we, we know the debate with these uh, uh, Prague rules that have been uh, launched at some point. These are tendencies which I see as, as regressive one in the sense that if arbitration has brought anything, it is the ability for parties around the world to litigate by speaking the same language. And that is fundamental. You can have a claimant in Japan who's a respondent in California, arbitrators in uh, uh, Brazil, France, or South Africa, all speaking the same procedural language, uh, thus establishing a level playing field. And that is fundamental. If arbitration moves away from that, arbitration will die. This is fundamental. Uh, nonetheless, there have been some tendencies of, uh, on the one side, which are, I define as protectionism. Uh, you have seen that in, in, in Peru with a draft rule recently, in other parts of the world with uh, attempts to exclude, for example, foreign arbitrators from, from certain jurisdictions or to establish state control on institutions, which is, of course, very negative, and attempts to move away from uh, from the global uh, practice of arbitration, from the uh, existence of a court transnational rules applying to arbitrary procedure, uh, the, the Prague rules are part of that. I expressed my views on, on, on this, and I, I always thought that this was uh, unnecessary and, and aggressive in a way. But these are two, two distinct phenomena, I would say. Okay. Well, you, you mentioned Japan, Brazil, number of countries. So let me just talk to you about geography. What, in your mind, what is the next region of the world where international arbitration will become, the modern marketing phrase, the next big thing? In other words, where, where is the growth market that you see for international arbitration? Well, the growth market, of course, is already there. The, the, the main, the main uh, region where arbitration is growing and will continue to grow is Asia. That's absolutely certain for very objective and economic reasons that are easy to understand. The region where we will see more development, uh, I hope, is Africa. Africa is the region uh, where there is the most potential, I would say, for, for arbitration. It is the region where uh, there is the need for uh, more efforts and more development of the local arbitration community. There are not enough African arbitrators in uh, ICC tribunals, in tribunals from all institutions. The community, the African community, is not strong enough, is not present enough in, in, in the arbitration forum, and all institutions need to make a tremendous effort on, on, on this plane. But I would say that overall, we still uh, are not where we should be. Uh, if you look at uh, our statistics, for example, we, we do report or confirm at the ICC roughly uh, 1,600 uh, arbitrators every year. Uh, still now uh, almost 70% of that population uh, originates from Western Europe or North America. Uh, and that is not reflective of the reality of arbitration today. So we need more arbitrators from Asia, more for Latin America, even though the community is very strong in Latin America already, and certainly a big, big effort to, to, to be made uh, in Africa and in the Middle East as well. Alexi, in terms of Africa, do you see a distinction between Francophone Africa, the rest of Africa, Northern Africa versus the rest of Africa? Yes, of course. These are different cultures, different histories, and, uh, and different markets, although there are points in common. But uh, Francophone Africa and, and uh, Anglophone Africa have their own, uh, own different characteristics, of course. I was thinking of whether the ICC would you know, just have a natural advantage or focus on Francophone Africa. I don't think so. 
the ICC is, from that perspective, is really perceived as a global institution. It's not perceived as a francophone institution at all. Yeah, yeah. No, that's for sure. That's for sure. It's just an, an additional advantage that, that, that it would have because of the history. But um, well, let, let me ask you, you mentioned Asia. Are you including India in that? Yes, of course. Perfect. And, and the reason I, I wanted to hone in and focus on India, do you have a view on the future growth of arbitration in India in particular? Arbitration has been growing uh, very significantly in, in India uh, since I became the president. I must have been to India more than 10 times, more than once a year, every year, and perhaps twice a year. Uh, it's a very, very impressive market with uh, an immensely uh, skilled community of lawyers there. India is still handicapped to, to a certain extent by, uh, by the judiciary and by uh, a number of characteristics, uh, court intervention, arbitrations, uh, stays, anti-suit injunctions, which need to be overcome. But India is, is an immense market. India will grow. We will see uh, more good, reliable institutions uh, appearing in India. Uh, the Mumbai Center has done a very good job so far, uh, but we will see more. And I'm sure that India uh, will, will become a very, very important center for, uh, for arbitration uh, in Asia in the years to come. Well, thank you, Alexi. Let me conclude this section of our uh conversation by asking you one last question. What is your view on the future of London as an arbitral seat in light of Brexit? I don't think that Brexit will affect uh, London as an arbitral seat. In fact, it may well it may well have the effect of developing London uh, for a number of uh, investment cases for the reasons that, that we all know. Perhaps on the long run, Brexit may have an effect if, uh, if Brexit has the uh, consequence of weakening the legal community in London. Uh, we know uh, how, how much large uh, London law firms have grown on the financial market. So we'll have to see whether in 20 years from now, the city is as strong as it used to be in the past. And that may have an indirect effect on uh, on arbitration. But I think that apart from that, uh, in the years to come, uh, Brexit will not weaken London as, as an arbitration city. Thank you, Alexi, for joining us today. To our listeners, we hope you've enjoyed this very, very interesting interview with Alexi. And this will conclude part one of our two-part series. Thank you, everyone, for listening. And please be on the lookout for part two of our interview with Alexi coming soon. Arbitral Insights is a Reed Smith production. Our producer is Ali McArdle. For more information about Reed Smith's global international arbitration practice, email Garaga at jia at reedsmith.com. You can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple, Google Play, Stitcher, ReadSmith.com, and our social media accounts at ReadSmith LLP on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. This podcast is provided for educational purposes. It does not constitute legal advice and is not intended to establish an attorney-client relationship, nor is it intended to suggest or establish standards of care applicable to particular lawyers in any given situation. Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome. All rights reserved.